Good, good morning, everybody. So I'm curious, the people in the room, how many of you would consider yourself a completionist? In other words, you like to cross off the lines on your list, check all the boxes, clear the plate. How many people are a completionist here? Good chunk of you. That's pretty good. The rest, praying for you. All right. So... No, man, I'm, I'm kind of like that too, right? I really like completing things. The exception uh, to that rule is actually kind of what I'm doing today. I don't always love to complete a Sunday morning series. And, and I was contemplating that this week. I mean, there's part of it that's cool, like you did it, you finished it. Over the course of my 16 years now, running around with this wonderful group of people, we've gone through a lot of books of the Bible, a lot of series stuff. And in that sense, it's cool. But in another very real sense, it's hard for me because what I find is as I am working on a series, it's also working in me. And so as I'm writing the little notes, it's also writing on my heart. Some changes, adaptation, confrontation, whatever it is in my own life. And, and, and so that's why it's a little bit bittersweet for me. In fact, I would even so, go so far as to say that what you experience if you're listening on a Sunday morning or you listen to the podcast or read a blog that I write or whatever else, is uh, what you're getting is my own spiritual journey. I don't think I really put together my communication style to be like, hey, is this going to sound cool? Uh, it's really more like, hey, man, this is what I'm working through. This is what I'm learning. And so it's less like the homework assignment of doing a paper, and it's much more like raising a child in some ways when I do a series. And this series in particular is a lot more like that because you may not have realized, but we have actually spent seven years doing this series which is wild to think, right? But that's what it's been because I had this heart uh, probably about a decade ago to actually do the first five works of the Bible, those pieces of literature we call the Torah or the Pentateuch, if you like the Greek version, uh, but the works of Moses. My heart was to do that. And I had a number of reasons for wanting to do that. One was really simple. I dig the Hebrew Testament. Like the more I grow in my Christian faith, the more I love my Jewish roots in the scriptures back there because I find it's a lot messier. I find the complications of life are clearly identified. And as I get older, I realize like, hey, what I thought I had mastered, I don't have mastered. I appreciate these guys looking back at their lives, their challenges, their problems, whatever else, that speaks to me. The second reason I wanted to do it was surely the challenge of it. Like how many of you have ever attended a church in your life that said, we're gonna do Leviticus on Sundays? Y'all done it, all right? Numbers, same thing. Nobody does it. Deuteronomy, a couple chapters, a little hit, but they didn't really want to do Deuteronomy. Genesis and Exodus, everybody digs that. They'll do that. But uh, I wanted the challenge, right? So that was a part of it. And, and I think even in that, those are the pieces of the Bible that have some of the hardest, most perplexing, confusing, just sometimes troubling things. And I don't think we should just like look away, pretend like we're, they're not there. We need to face those things and try to figure out what do we do with those things, even if in the end it means... I don't know what I do. It just means we faced it. So all of that is true. But, but it was funny, as I'm coming to the end of this, I was struck by this kind of existential moment. Uh, and, and the moment is rooted in the fact that when this was dreamed up and when it started, um, my kids were still at home. They're all adults, and they're out in the universe now, so to speak, Right? And at that point, there was no grandkids on the horizon. I mean, my oldest is married with two kids. My middle one is getting married this summer. And then my young one is figuring out life as well. Like they've all kind of launched and everything else. And when I kind of dreamed this up, I was in the locker room of life at halftime. Right? Like it just was. 
and there wasn't some of the life changes and life challenges and hardships and crises and health problems that have kind of come over the course of that time. So now I get to this point and I'm reflecting and it just reminds me, much like the life of Moses, you start off a thing in life and you're ready to go and you have all these dreams, all these ambitions, all these ideals, and then finally one day you wake up and you're like, whoa, I'm out on the field deep into the third quarter. I have grandkids and new health problems and new life things and there's been all of this. And, and, and you just sort of realize the limits of life. You, you realize that everything you thought you were going to accomplish, you're now running on finite time. And not everything is going to happen. All your dreams aren't going to come true. You're not going to check off everything on the bucket list, right? You just realize that there's a limitation, finally. And you start to adapt according to those limitations. And that's why I found myself being drawn into this last talk in Deuteronomy, because I'm watching the life of Moses, and here's a guy, he's on the precipice of death, and he's not getting every one of his wildest dreams fulfilled. He's not accomplishing all of his goals. He didn't get to see everything brought to completion that he had dreamed up and hoped for and was investing into. I mean, I think that's so fascinating. I mean, you think about the fact he invested decades of his life into this project. And now the project is at its twilight for him, and he has to sort of let that go. Now, what I've learned about this and what I've reflected on in my own life, because yesterday was my birthday, now I'm 53, and... Uh, no, see, here, wait, I'm going to stop you. I want to be clear. I want to be clear. If you want to clap for anyone, you should clap for my mother. All right? I, that day, I just rode the contractions. I did not do anything, right? It should be the birther day, not the birthday. I mean, she should get all the presents. I shouldn't get anything. So anyway, that's a sidebar. It's a freebie because you're here. All right? But in realizing this and in realizing my placement in life and everything else, I, I, I couldn't help but think like, you know what? Uh, it's true that while in life we can die in peace, uh, I've been at many deathbeds, I've seen many people die in peace. I don't think many of us, when we are dying in peace, go, and we did everything we hoped to do. We accomplished every task, every dream was a reality. Like, that doesn't happen. And I just, again, found myself appreciating that. So in a very weird way, as much as Moses has ministered to my life over the last seven years going through these series, his death kind of ministered to me too in a different way. And I'm not going to chase all of that down. That's just a little bit more like, hey, I take you on a journey that I go through sometimes. And that was kind of the journey I went through in this closer. And so with that, we're going to close this work and the series. And so I want to remind you, we do have an app. And in the app, there are notes that you can follow along with, blanks that you can fill out. All the verses are in there. That's going to be great. But I'm also just going to pray as we settle in for today and we race to the end of the last of the Torah. Let's do this together. Jesus, I, I thank you that there are different ways that you teach lessons. You teach lessons through kind of this kind of didactic point-by-point point, uh, kind of methodology. You use illustration, you use story, you use failure, you use success, you use hardship, and you use blessing. All of those things are kind of like the tools at your disposal to shape us. And, and so I pray that we will allow all of those tools to do their work, that we won't want these more than that, resist these ones, but prefer those ones, but we will realize it's just this kind of kaleidoscope of investment you make into us. 
So may we be teachable in that. May we be pliable before you. May we be useful in your hands as we seek to do what you've called us to do in this world, which is what I think we've seen throughout the work of Moses. You've called us to be a people that are different, to go make a difference so that others can be made different, unified with you, Jesus, and from that we change the world. Help us to fulfill that mission of being wise and intelligent and emphasizing the uniqueness of our God. Thank you for today, for these people, and for your grace and goodness. In your perfect name we pray. Amen. So in his seminal work, More Power to You, Warren Burnus outlined the five key kind of virtues or abilities of what he called a super leader. He's like, there's leaders, and then there are super leaders that make a radical impact on their environment. And these five things in this particular order were first, a super leader has the capacity for vision. Not just vision like an idea, but they can see the ideal outcome and they can try to now kind of plot a course to that outcome. So that's the first thing. From that, then they have to master communication. And that's the second thing. They can rally others to the cause and help them see exactly where this thing is going. In light of that, the third thing is they have persistence. No matter what comes up for them and are against them, is working or not working, they figure out a way through the minefield and they keep sticking with the plan to make the vision a reality. Now in this, they also realize that they can't do it in and of themselves on their own shoulders alone. So the fourth thing he says is they have the power of empowerment. They can harness the abilities of others to make sure that the sum is greater than the parts. And then fifth, he says, this is so critical, they have this kind of organizational learning process as they go. In other words, as they're doing it, they're constantly taking notes and they're figuring out how to adjust or to kind of make amendments and maybe think about things a little bit differently and reinvest into the system. And he goes through again, vision, communication, persistence, empowerment, and then more organizational learning. That's the structure that he outlines. And when I think about those five qualities, I go, that was Moses. He was a super leader through and through. But here is also the thing we must remember. Time and tenure is limited for all. For all. It doesn't matter how great of a leader you are. Eventually, your twilight comes. I mean, we saw it this year as a bunch of Seahawks fans, right? Pete Carroll. Ah, uh, I know, it's so weird. It's going to be weird watching games next year, not seeing that gum-smacking-clapping guy, right? It's going to be weird. But time and tenure comes to all. It was strange that even it was the same year as Bill Belichick is out of the league. These were the two most well-noted coaches in the NFL just a few years ago. Now it's over. Winston Churchill, right guy, right time, the dude for the place that needed him most, and then eventually time and tenure caught up. George Washington, you pick the figure. That's all the same thing. And so now, as we've been turning page after page after page, going through the Torah of the Hebrew scriptures, we reach that final patch of parchment that teaches on the succession of Moses. And so that is our final part of the series, succession. It's the close of this instructional manual, and it's Moses passing on the torch, in essence, to another generation, a new generation. And so with that, I want to invite all of you to bring your seat backs and tray tables to a locked and upright position. We're going to land the plane of Deuteronomy. And we're going to start with number one in your notes. That is Moses' reinforcement of the plan. 
He's gonna reinforce everything he's been investing in decade after decade after decade after decade. Like it's just been hauling, man. So it says in verse one to chapter 31, when Moses had finished giving these instructions to all the people of Israel, he said, I am now 120 years old and I'm tired and I'm no longer able to lead you. The Lord has told me you will not cross the Jordan River, but the Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. So think about his life. For 40 years, he was a son in Egypt. Then for the next 40 years, he was chief enemy number one for Egypt. And then the last 40 years, he is the liberator of the people out of Egypt. So he's had these three critical phases in his life. All of them hard, all of them tenuous, all of them a challenge. But for all of this time, he's been a leader leading toward life, life in a new land. Now he is a leader facing his death. And his death is because of something very public, right? There was this critical moment, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, but there was a critical moment where God's like, I need you to step up and be the dude, be my man, fulfill what I said. Moses loses it, doesn't do it. Everybody knows he didn't do it, and now he's gonna die because of it. In some ways, it's such a royal bummer. And he knows this is the case, and he's gonna continue to tell them, I don't get to go, I don't get to go, I don't get to go. But in some ways, what I love about the tone of Moses is that there's another part of him that's like, I can't go, but who cares? Because it was never about me anyway. It was never about me. Like, he doesn't have this sense of entitlement. Like, hey, look what I did. I should get the, the brass ring on the carousel of life. He doesn't do that. Now he's like, you know what? I can't go. But the good news is God can, God will, God does. He's on the move. And so Moses is still choosing to lead the people even when he no longer is really going to be able to lead the people. His last breaths are still moving them in the direction that God is taking them. And so he reminds them. He says, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid and do not panic before them as you go into New Eden, the promised land. He says, don't do that because the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. Now, there's some key words in all of this, right? When he says, be strong and courageous. See, he says this because he remembers 40 years previous that put them on this whole crazy detour to begin with. This time where he says, you know what? You guys lacked courage. You had uh, just a, an abundance of fear. It got in the way of we, us going into the promised land because y'all freaked out with your 12 spies and it just became a big mess and we've all been suffering this whole time. But now he's just reminding them this is the moment. And he wants them to recall the fact that, yes, listen, it seems impossible to go and do this. But he's like, if God is with you, everything is possible. Nothing is impossible if you remember who is present as you move. It isn't just simply like, hey, if you have faith in God, it's more deep than that. He's like, he is rolling with your posse. He is leading and going before you to clear space to make this work. Don't forget that. Don't forget it. As he wants to just make sure, be courageous, be strong, be ready to go. He's not going to abandon you. Now we're gonna see in a minute, there's gonna be times where he says, but I'm gonna pull back from you. I'm gonna put you in the corner with your dunce hat on and say, naughty boy, that's gonna happen, certainly to Israel. But ultimately, he will not abandon them. Now it's just not simply God's presence alone that God will use. Just as he's used Exodus liberators to pull them out, he is going to use New Eden leaders to bring them in. 
Thus, you see Moses begins to oversee this succession plan. And it kind of comes in three distinct acts. The first has to do with the leadership. The leadership. In verse 7, it says, Then Moses called for Joshua, as uh, all of Israel then watched. Right? So there's, everybody's checking the scene out, right? It's simulcast on all channels. He says, Be strong and courageous. He's saying this to now Joshua, the leader. For you will lead these people into the land that the Lord your God swore to give our ancestors, right? You are the one who will divide it among them into grants of land. Every tribe is going to get a certain amount. Every family within every tribe gets a certain amount. And so he says, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord will personally go ahead of you, and he will be with you, and he will neither fail you nor abandon you. So it's just that reminder, just as God will lead the led, God is also leading the leader. So God is guiding the whole system and situation. And so he's saying again, hey, be courageous, be, be faith-filled, be decisive in what you do, which is going to be tough, man, because now Joshua's going to be leading the same pot of people Moses has been leading, and Moses knows how difficult they are, how they're going to do their own thing and not listen and not pay attention. So he's like, man, you got to stay strong, dude, because problems will be real, and people will be difficult, and plans will be amend amended, and plans will be abandoned. All of that's true. Because here's what he knows. Here's what we know. Life gets in the way of progress. Right? Our fears get in the way of seeing God's faithfulness fully executed as he would envision. All of that happens. So as much as they need leaders to move them into this new space, they need to be reminded of the learning that they have learned in this process to follow those leaders properly. And so that's kind of act two. The learning then Moses wrote this entire body of instruction, the Torah, in a book, and gave it to the priests. So everything he's been teaching, he finally writes down, right? And he gave it to the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, right? They're the kind of the leaders and the elders of Israel. And then Moses gave them this command. At the end of every seventh year, the year of release, during the festival of shelters, you must read the book of instruction, the Torah, to all the people in Israel when they assemble together, right? Call them all, the men, the women, the children, the foreigners who live among you. They must hear this book of instruction and learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully obey all the terms of these instructions. Do this as long as you live in the land you are crossing into the Jordan to occupy. So remember uh, we talked about the plaster-covered stones at the base of Mount Ebal? That's eventually going to be written in the book of Joshua chapter 8. Well, here Moses is scribbling as fast as he can the codex of all of that instruction. Here is the portable version. When you get into the land, you take the portable version, you write it in a fixed position so that everybody sees, everybody remembers, this is the code. And if you do this, you will be blessed, you will be wise, and you will be an example for the other nations to bring flourishing to the world. But he says it's clear. It's meant to be read and heard and followed. So you got the leaders, you got the learning, but in this, also remember, never forget, it all hinges on the third act, the third key piece, which is lordship. Never lose fact of who really is the lord of this nation, right? Because there's going to be changes in leadership and everything else, but the true leader of Israel is always going to be the lord of Israel. So then Moses, so then the Lord rather said to Moses, the time has come for you to die. Which, by the way, I just, when I was reading through all of this, I kept laughing because God keeps reminding him, you're going to die. You're going to die. 
die. It's coming, right? So you're going to see the light. Don't forget, I mentioned you're, you're going to die. So you're going to die. So he says, call Joshua and present yourselves to the tabernacle so that I may commission him there. And so Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tabernacle, and the Lord appeared to them in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance to the sacred tent. This is cool because what it's also telling the people as they're all watching is that Joshua is not Moses' hand-picked man. Joshua is God's picked dude. That's what it is. God set him apart. So Moses could have had any pick of the litter. I'm sure he would have said, well, Joshua's rad. Let's go with that. But it's meant to make the point that God is moving the sense of authority from this guy to this guy, and God approves of this guy, and this guy is going to be the tool that God uses to go into their next leg of the journey. That's it. But can I tell you why I think that's a valuable lesson even right there? Um, it's very easy for all of us, for all of us, to want to be the kind of woman or man that we want us to be, or to be the kind of woman or man that others want us to be. But the lesson here is always seek to be the woman or the man that God has made you to be, that God wants you to be, that God is working a thing in you to, to be what he fully is included for your life and what he wants to destine you for. Like, this is super important. In fact, I was thinking about it in my own life. Um, there are, are many times where I, I feel a lot of pressure to not be how God has made me. Now, I don't mean I'm defending my stupidness and weak spots and sinful. I don't mean like that. But like, he's built me to be a certain kind of person and a certain kind of leader and a certain kind of pastor. And I'll tell you where I get the most wounds is from being what I think he's built me to be. And sometimes you go, I just don't want to be what I'm built to be. I want to be what other wa others want me to be or I want to conform. Like, that's the pressure. But God, no, I want... Moses, you to be like this. Joshua, I want you to be like this, and I want you to be the person I built you to be. And as you're doing that, then I can use you and commission you to great things. And so that's exactly what's happening. God's picked this person. And so we have a new leader, a written code, and a present God. In light of those things all checked off, it's now cool for Moses to kick the bucket, right? No. This poor wanderer gets then pulled into an executive meeting with God. It's like a closed door behind the scenes. I'm sure Moses is like, you said you're going to kill me. You've told me like seven times I'm going to die. Can I just die now? I'm ready to go, ready to go. God's like, not yet. We need to have a sidebar meeting. And in the sidebar, um, there's some uh, kind of bad parting news. The Lord said to Moses, you were about to die and join your aunt. See, I told you, he's telling them all the time. You're going to die. After you're gone, these people will begin to worship foreign gods, the gods of the land where they are going. They will abandon me and break my covenant I've made with them. Then my anger will blaze forth against them, and I will abandon them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. Did you find something a little funny there? Remember, his, remember Moses' pep speech? You're going into the land. God is faithful. He won't abandon you. Going into a closed-door meeting, and God's like, no, nah, I'm going to abandon them. I'm going to very much abandon them. What do I do with that? Here's the thing. God has already said, uh, this is my elect chosen nation. They're saved. Right? And in that sense, I will never abandon how I am their savior and their liberator. What I may do is in the micro level, abandon them for a season, turn them over for a time to badness, to cursing, to an absence of my presence, so they realize life stinks there. 
But it's not an ultimate abandonment. It's a micro abandonment in light of a macro agenda, which is to use them, rescue them, bless them, because he's saved them. That's the heart. But I'm sitting here reading this also in Moses' sandals as a leader, right? And I'm sure he's like, let me get this straight. I've put in all this work, all this time, all this heartache. I lost my crap and hit that rock with that stick because of these dorks. And now you're telling me for all of that, it's for not? It's for nothing? This is incomplete? Even when I freaked out and got mad and hit the rock, it's because they were idiots. I was defending you. And now you're telling me all this time, decades of my life invested into a group, and this is going to be the conclusion? And you're telling me on my deathbed? Like, just honestly, think about that. I, I mean, I was writing notes to myself this week, and it's kind of like worst bedside chaplaincy at the hospital ever, <laughs> you know? It's like, all oh, your family are going to leave me. You're free to die, you know? It's, I'm like, man, that is brutal, right? It's brutal. So in light of this rather dark news, I'm sure Moses is like, well then, what do we do? I'm getting ready to die. You're telling me there's bad news. How can we get ahead of it? How can we curb the problem? And I'm sure God's like, I'm glad you asked because I have an idea. A musical. We're going to write a musical. It's like, what? That's exactly what God says. He says, all right, they're going to be dumb. So write down the words of this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Help them learn it so they may serve as a witness for me against them. For I will bring them into the land I swore to give their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will become prosperous, and they will eat the food, all the food they want, and they're, then they're going to become fat, he says. <laughs> so they're going to get all comfy, all cozy, all puffy, apparently. They're going to be living the Hebrew dream. They're going to forget God's dream for them. They're going to make up dreams for themselves. And they all begin to worship other gods, he says. And they will despise me and break my covenant. And when great disaster comes upon them, this song will stand as evidence against them, for it will never be forgotten by their descendants. Which I would like to say for the record, puts a lot of pressure on Moses. Because God's like, here's the words. You've got to come up with the tune. <laughs> I don't, you know, like, that, but at the same time, Brilliant. It's brilliant, right? You ever had those songs you can't get out of your head? That's all this is, right? Marketers know this stuff. They do. Let's try it out. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Brilliant. One, eight, seven, seven. Cards for kids. Brilliant. Every kiss begins with... I remember years ago, this is so twisted. Used to take my family up to Galaxy Monroe Theater, right? And you'd be sitting in there before the movie starts, and there was this commercial. If you're filing for divorce and you need help, you better call who? Mike Gallagher. See, I'm like, I don't plan on getting a divorce, but if I do... The first guy I'm calling is Mike Gallagher, right? Why? I don't even know if he's any good. I looked him up on Yelp this week. He's an awful attorney. Awful. But the song is catchy, right? You remember. 
So it's brilliant because songs are sticky and gosh, man, they're just so portable and emotional. And so it says in verse 22, that very day, Moses wrote down the words of the song and taught it to the Israelites. Now, this is still in chapter 31. Chapter 32 is the song. And it is long. It is a long song. And so I'm going to read every word of it. No, I'm not going to read every word. But I'm going to give you the gist. I sat down, and I was reading through the song. I'm like, okay, I'm going to put this in slightly my own abbreviated, kind of fast-moving words, and then you can get a sense of what it's getting at. I have no tune, by the way, so I'm not going to try to sing it. No, don't sing it. Let's see. Listen up, you sorry sacks of foolish. No, I can't do it. It's not there. But <laughs> you get the idea where it's going. So here's my rendition. No singing attached. Listen up, you sorry sacks of foolish. God is good. God is a rock. He's perfect and just and fair and faithful and upright. But we as a nation, we suck. We engage in tomfoolery and dumbfoolery and dorkfoolery and thugfoolery. All of that's in the original Hebrew, I'm sure. <laughs> and while it is true, and this is a weird one, while it is true that God subleased the other nations to beings in his court, that's verse 9 of the song, it's super weird. God gives the nations to all these beings in his court. Don't know what to do with that. It's just there. It says, but as he does that, though, the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob is his special possession. So he is then our origin story. He found us, rescued us, raised us, cared for us, fed us, led us, and elevated us. But we became rich and comfortable and callous and entitled and ungrateful, unfaithful, unholy, and untethered. So the Lord draws back and he lets the chaos flood in by fire and arrow and flame and disease and feast and viper and dust unto death, crushing the young, the old, the infant, and the aged. He would have annihilated you, for you are selfish and callous and foolish and heartless, but you are nonetheless his people. For he says, I will give you over in judgment to other nations, but so that I might rejoin you together as my nation. Indeed, the Lord gives justice to his people, and he will change his mind about his servants. When he sees their strength is gone, and no one is left a slave or free, that is when he will reinforce your folly. Why did you rebel? Why did you follow after the gods who now are not rescuing you and are nowhere to be found? I will tell you why. Because there is no other God but me. I am the one who kills and the one who gives life. I am the one who wounds, and I am the one who heals. No one can be rescued from my powerful hand. Thus it concludes. Rejoice with him, you heavens, and let all of God's angels worship him. Rejoice, you people, including you Gentiles, and let all the angels be strengthened in him, for he will avenge the blood of his children. So Israel, that gets punked by the nations and all this stuff for their folly, he says, I will avenge their blood. He says, I will take revenge against the enemies of Israel. He will repay those who hate Israel and cleanse his people's land. So for all of the journey and all of their madness and all of their crazy, they're still a saved people that he is using this to bring back to himself. And so that concludes the song. And then Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and recited all these words of the song to the people. And when Moses had finished reciting these words to the people, he added, take to heart all the words of warning I've given you today. Pass them on as a command to your children so they will obey every word of these instructions. These instructions are not empty words. These are your life. They're your life. 
And so he keeps trying to bring it back to life is better with Yahweh. Life is better with Jesus. When we do things his way, it's just better, right? That's the point. And so on this particular day, think about poor Moses. He has to write all of Deuteronomy, and then he has to write the musical score that goes with it. That's a lot. And again, while he's waiting in the waiting room of death, you know, it's like death is over his shoulder with sickle and robe. And he's like, dude, back off. I'm writing a song. And when I'm done with the song, then I can go die. That's the plan. So they got to sing along. They got the instruction. And thus, Moses comes back to warn the nation. After all this is written, going back then to chapter 31, because the song was in 32, but it's happening inside the context of the story of chapter 31. It says, when Moses had finished writing both the song and now the entire body of instruction in the book, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. He says, take the book of instruction and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God so that it may remain there as a witness. As a witness, as a reminder of what you should do, but also a reminder of what you should not do. Because a witness plays both ways. A witness is like, hey, thumbs up, go do this. But if you fail, thumbs down, and it's going to be a drag for you. And that's exactly what this is here. It is a witness, he says, against the people of Israel. Write this down as a witness against them. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Even now, while I'm still alive and I'm here with you, you have rebelled against the Lord. How much more rebellious will you be after my death? See, the same standard that says, hey, do this and live, is by its inverse, and don't do this and die. Blessing and cursing sit on the exact same coin. It's just what side you choose to play. That's really what it comes down to here. Now, when Moses says this, he's not like some Morpheus in the Matrix with Neo in an unimpassioned offer. Choose the red pill or the blue pill. Like, that's not Moses. He's an angry old Jewish grandpa is where he's at at this point, right? He's like, I know what you people are like. You were morons in my life. You made me mad, and I hit the rock, and now I've accelerated my death. Sounds like Bernie Sanders, I know. Um, I kind of always hear Moses in my head like Bernie Sanders. I don't know why that is, right? I just do, right? And so he's like, and now I'm going to die, and I'm going to roll in my grave because of you idiots. You know, like he's just kind of like frustrated, like, man, so much time, so much energy, right? And so from this he calls a huddle. He says, now summon all the elders and officials of your tribe so I can speak to them directly and call heaven and earth to witness against them. Because I know after my death, you'll become utterly corrupt and will not turn from the ways that you're going down of ways I've commanded you to do different. He says, in these days to come, disaster will come down on you for you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, making him very angry with your actions. And so he's just like, listen, you guys are gonna be as dumb as stumps. You're gonna be as reckless as frat boys. You're gonna be as catty as dance moms, greedy as Wall Street as hypocritical as Hollywood. You'll be cold to the foreigner, callous to the poor, clueless about mercy, justice, and love. And when that happens, and when you're in the mud, and in the muck, and in the mire, remember the song. Gonna call my Gallagher. Right? Remember the song I taught you that's stuck in your head that you cannot shake loose. And remember in that song, it says, you will face cursing. You find yourself where you're at because you've walked away from God. But don't forget the end of the song. And you are his. And he still loves you. And he will bring you back to himself. So just as much as he's giving all these words of warning and cursing and scolding, 
Again, it closes in the restorative nature of God. God is a restorative God. God doesn't do these things to be punitive. He does these things to be restorative. And so with that, Moses then blesses the clans here at the end. It says in chapter 33, this is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, gave to the people of Israel before his death. The Lord came from Mount Sinai, and he dawned upon us with flaming fire at his right hand. Indeed, he loves his people. All his holy ones are in his hands. They follow in his steps and accept his teaching. So again, this is what's so weird. you got to keep in mind that when they are following false gods and they're doing terrible stuff, they're still God's kids. They're still his holy ones, even though they look nothing like it. And he's like, and God's not done with you. And so he is just reminding them of the teaching that was given to the 12 tribes. And what were those teachings? We said it was six key words in Deuteronomy. It's about the Lord. It's about the Lord that you love and listen to. And if you really love him, you're going to listen to him. And if you really listen to him, you're going to love him. And that's going to lead you to really learning of him. Not just hearing, but learning. And if you're really learning, it's going to bring stability in the land. And ultimately, it produces life. Flourishing instead of decay. Blessing instead of cursing. And so he reminds them again of the nature of their God one last time. The eternal God is your refuge. He is your safe space. He is the everlasting arm that is coming to guide you, protect you, hold you up. Thus he says, how blessed are you, O Israel? Who else is like you, a people saved by the Lord? Remember, I kept telling you they're saved. In all their dumbness, they're saved. He says, he is your protecting shield and your triumphant sword. And so there's going to be a lot of highs, and there's going to be a lot of lows. And in those lows, no matter how much they stray or stumble or sin, they choose their false gods or serve decaying systems or suffer the curse of loss, he is still the God who saved them and the God who restored them. Not because they're so faithful, but because God is faithful. And God is faithful to what he's promised and planned. I'll tell you why this is important to me. As I was thinking about this really hard this week, uh, and I've heard pastors say this my whole life, and I don't think they really believe it. Sometimes I think they just say it because it sounds good to preach it. Um, they go, we're no different than Israel. And I actually go, exactly right. I, I, I think we as evangelical Christians are really no different than Israel, right? We, we fall victim to following our false gods in life. Uh, we fall victim to being kind of legalistic at times. Uh, we, we, we tend to kind of go pillar to post, I either I have my messes or I'm judging other people for their messes. And I kind of had this moment of realization like, I, I don't have, I, I'll say it this way, I've got so much garbage in my life, I don't have time to worry about everybody else's garbage. I'm in Israel. I'm in Israel in every beautiful way, saved by God, and I'm in Israel in every bad way. I do my own thing. And if not being a legalist, I'm being too licentious. It's just always there. And so I have enough hypocrisy and pride to have exercise for my own life to worry about everybody else. And so I just kind of went through this. I was like, man, I'm really grateful for the grace and kindness and, and patience of the Lord with me because I am no different than them. And yet it's not my role that holds me in place. It's his role. As to Moses and our story, time for the final, final page, final snippet. Moses leaves the people. It says, then Moses went to Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab and the Lord showed him the whole land. The Lord said to Moses, this is the land I promised on an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give you the, give this space to all your descendants. And now I've allowed you to see it with your own eyes, but you will not enter again. <laughs> it's just tough, right? 
But again, why doesn't he enter? Because some time back, he got angry, struck a rock, lashed out, and lost his, his window. And I had somebody ask me about this last week. I said, why did God do that? Isn't that like bringing a kid into a candy store and saying, you can look, Johnny, but you can't have any candy. Like, is that how God did it, right? And they were like, I don't understand what to do with the story. And I'll confess, I, I don't fully understand either. Like, I look at David, right? Here's a dude that had so many errors, mistakes, sins. You can't even count them all, right? Literally tens of thousands of people died because of his pride and selfishness and lack of vision toward God and everything else. And he stays in power all the way to his dying day where he's in bed with a teenager to keep him warm. And you're like, how is this guy— like the man after God's own heart, where then Moses, I read a story, there's one incident, it seems, where he's dumb, and now it's irrevocable. You're like, what? And, and so I was trying to find some homework on that, and I finally came across a rabbi that said, the story just shows that God is unpredictable. And I'm like, that what? Really? <laughs> God is random, you know? And and yet I found a certain kind of beauty in that too, weirdly. Like, I thank you that you just said God is random. Like, you just simplified this confusing thing for me. doesn't resolve, but I appreciated it nonetheless. And so Moses flipped his lid, thus he loses his passport, can't go into the promised land. That's what it is. But here's the cool thing, just as a backup to it. Um, yeah, he can't go into the land, but it kind of reminds you of the reality that really the land isn't the big idea. Let me put it different. Um, Eden, without the presence of God, is just another garden. The promised land, without the presence of God, is just another patch of dirt. And while Moses can't go to this space, he's on Mount Nebo with his God, who is there by his side as he's breathing his last breaths. That's a beautiful scene. It was always about the presence of God. And so sitting with his Lord... He draws his final breath. And in verse 5 it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. And then the Lord buried him in the valley near Beth Peor in Moab. But to this day, no one knows exactly the place. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyesight was clear, and he was as strong as ever. A couple of things about this. The, the first thing I think is really cool is I can't, I, I, I try to think and look as much as I could. I don't think there's any person you see outside of Moses that was buried personally by God, right? So God takes his life on that mount, but God also buries him personally. I think that's a really beautiful thing. Now, if you want a fun little, like, sidebar assignment you can go home and do, uh, go to the Christian Testament, the book of Jude, verse 9. Read that. Have your mind blown. It's a weird little verse, but it's about the scene right here. And if you have questions, email Pastor Scott at Scott, I-M-R-C. <laughs> I, you can email me. I'll give it a shot. Right? But that's the first thing that stands out. The, the second thing that stands out is just kind of a giggle that I get sometimes. Because, like, the first he's like, and when he died at 120, it wasn't like he died of old age. He's like, no, his eyesight was good. Like, hey, I can see the whole place I don't get to go to. 2020. But then the other thing it says is that he was strong. Different English versions say it differently. One says his vigor was unabated. Another says he had not lost his natural force. In Hebrew, it literally reads, he had not lost his moistness or freshness. And what it's getting at is that he did not need the little blue pill when he went 
to go home that day on that mountain. And you're like, really? But think about it. This whole narrative is about God building a nation and about passing on generations. And it's all about the growth and fertility of a people. And so it's making the point that Moses is still blessed of God, even at that age, to do those things because it's all about flourishing. So there's a symbolism in there. It's not just like, hey, gratuitous things that I don't want to know about Moses' personal life. That's not it. It's just reinforcing that he was still blessed of God, which is why it concludes and says, he's the servant of the Lord. Yes, he had a consequence that brought an early demise, and he's still God's guy. And so as he passes away, Moses rests, and therefore Joshua leads the people. It says, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, and Moses had laid hands on him, so the people of Israel obeyed him now doing just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so from there, the story continues into the invasion, Joshua judges, and eventually into the kings. But it sums up and says, there was never another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. What's cool is you go, Moses is a big time dude. He got to see the Lord face to face. You fast forward all the way to the very last book of this Bible, and you see where every one of us get to see the Lord face to face because of what Jesus did, what Jesus has done. He gives us access that only Moses had then, all have access in Christ now. And so with that, how does Deuteronomy re real life? Real quick, three points. First question, how am I serving to be the person God has called me to be versus what I or others want me to be? Again, just being your authentic self in Christ is what matters. Number two, how does knowing, uh, knowing I am just as prone to sin as Israel, how does that remind me of the need for humility, mercy, and the need of grace? Again, we're all good at being bad Israel. How does that remind me to be that kind of person in those ways? Good, righteous, humble, merciful, and leaning into grace. And then last, how am I seeking to live the flourishing life that blesses the people around me? Because that's really what God is doing in the people of Israel. A nation of blessing to bless the nations. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you are the rescuer. As John says when you come walking up, there behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like, that's what you do to move us from cursing to blessing and in blessing to be a blessing. First of all, if there's anybody here today or anybody watching online and you don't know Jesus, it's Jesus that gives life in a whole new radical way and life is better with him. If you don't know him, you can step into a new world with him where you acknowledge, hey, I've rebelled. I've gone my own way. I've been writing my own code here, but I want life in you. I know you died for my sin. I know you did this to give me life. I want my life to start with you in a journey that is new and fresh and, and, and never is gonna come to a close. If you make that your prayer and your way, we would love to know. I'm gonna be outside afterward. We have an app in our tile that you can just tap that and let us know you made that decision today. There's a number that'll be on the screen. You can text that any way you can let us know. It would be awesome because we would love to know. Beyond that, Jesus, I thank you that you are working in your people and I pray over us today to be strong and courageous, doing the stuff that you outlined for us, Jesus, doing the stuff of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon of the Plain, being a people of the fruit of the Spirit, defining love in this world in a way that's radical in comparison to the way it sometimes gets watered down. Help us to be focused on you and empowered by you. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen.